Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Thanks for the support on Patreon. It's going toward things like making more of these live podcasts happening. They're an investment right now because they're new. Haven't figured out the marketing. Haven't gotten. Um, haven't figured out how to get the audiences in consistently and affordably. But I am. I'm getting there, and it's 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 really coming along. I'm gonna make some changes to to the live show to get more butts in the seat. So in the meantime, um, your contributions are uh, are covering some of this initial investment, and then of course the documentary, which I uh, wish I could tell you how uh, how week one of shooting went, but I'm recording this intro super early, so you're going to have to wait another week, and then I'll keep you up to speed with everything as usual. But I'm 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 very excited to tell you more you in the future. Anyway, today's episode, Austin, Texas, David Boss, one of my favorites. Enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. yeah wow wow guys you guys are too much that's really amazing tonight we're going to be talking with uh professor david boss who i'm going to be introducing in a minute he just released this revised version of a classic book of his the evolution of desire and i'm i'm going to share a story about david and um and about this podcast so i i haven't really i'm not sure on my podcast i've ever fully addressed how i started doing this podcast so i've been traveling around interviewing scientists about life and why we behave the way that we do and that sort of thing and um 
how I got into it was I, I've been a comedian for 13 years. I caught some breaks early on and uh, got to be on TV and travel internationally. And when I started traveling internationally, I was like, I want to do more of this. I love traveling. And internationally, there's a lot of these festivals where people are doing like themed shows and, and solo shows and that sort of thing. And I started thinking about what my solo show would be about really this is just a ploy to spend more time in australia or whatever and uh and i i happened to realize that i had all of these jokes about time travel in my act oddly enough and i was like maybe i'd write a show about time travel i looked into time travel more like maybe it'd be about physics in general turns out it's really hard to write a comedy show about physics it was just like a lot of physics dick jokes um and and uh, I was like very unsatisfied with it, and but I was always interested in science. I didn't go to college or anything. I was always just kind of reading various magazines and picking up some books here and there. And and I um, so what happened was I had met this new uh, new girl, and early on we had met on a tour, and we I gave her mushrooms for the first time actually, and we ended up watching the Animal Planet on mushrooms. It was like a real bonding experience for us. <laughs> So anyhow, once we became a couple, this is the weirdest way to go about making a, a science podcast, by the way. It's the strangest story. When we, like, we fell deeply in love and moved in with one another and we would watch, she, she smoked way more weed than I did, and so I was smoking more weed than normal, and I was watching a lot of Animal Planet, like, <laughs> recounting this time that we had tripped and watched, and so... So I'm I'm making all these animal jo- jokes just naturally and like behaving like the animals or whatever to make her laugh. And at the same time, I'm having more sex than normal and so I'm writing all these jokes about sex and 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 at, so it was like a lot of animal behavior and a lot of sex stuff and then I started doing like mating behavior stuff and looking into it more um and that got me really into evolutionary psychology and biology which is what we're going to be talking a lot about this evening at first it was kind of just for a goof maybe i thought maybe i was going to do a show about like the science of sex or something like that and i did release a special on netflix called mating seasons like some animal behavior and how it applies to us right and at first it was just like, oh, maybe this could be a hook. And then once I started learning about evolutionary psychology and biology, it just changed the whole way that I saw the world. And I started reaching out to people um, like the guest tonight, uh, David Buss, and uh, and being like, hey, I read your book. Uh, would you be interested in... I didn't know what I was doing at the time. Like, uh, if you're ever in L.A., I'd like to try to put together a show or something. And anyway, I ended up making these uh, these really interesting friends in the science community and having these mind-blowing conversations that I wish had been recorded. And I was like, oh, I can just record that. That's, that's a thing that is possible. And so I just started recording these interesting conversations that I was having with scientists. And that's how the Here We Are podcast got its start. And so that's why you're all here uh, this evening. And this is going to be um, really fun. We're going to chat a little bit about the book. And then I'll open it up for some questions. Then. And if there's it, also if there's something that's like confusing or just something that probably you're welcome to like raise your hand or whatever like you're in class and ask something along the way as well. We, this is like a very meant to be a very casual, um, cool conversation. It's not – I don't like – sit and structure every little aspect of it and so uh, you guys are free to interject as well but joining me tonight is he's a professor at ut and he's um one of 
my uh, this is actually usually the le- live ones I have multiple guests and this one is I just have one guest because this guy is actually one of my heroes and I think it's pretty awesome that I get to uh, be doing this right now um, but he's kind of one of the one of the founding fathers of modern evolutionary psychology I hope I'm not embarrassing him by by saying that I probably am um, but anyway welcome to the stage David Buss everybody <laughs> Oh, so first off, thank you, David, for joining us. Um, tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about your, your book. So you actually wrote the first textbook on evolutionary psychology um, way back in the day. Uh, what, what year was that that, that came out? Uh, that was uh, 99. 99? Wow. wow. And like, so evolutionary psychology is like this very new field. Can you explain... This is actually interesting because it's it's one of my favorite topics, and so then I often get people asking me this question that I don't know um, exactly how to answer, which is people will be like, "Well, what is evolutionary psychology? What what? Uh, how do you answer that?" Uh, yeah, well, uh, so I mean, in a nutshell, uh, evolutionary psychology is simply the study of our psychology, of our underlying psychological mechanisms, through the lens of evolutionary theory. Uh, and um, the way that I look at it is, is it would be if I asked you um, uh, about your anatomy or your biology or your physiology, is there a non-evolutionary physiology? Um, is there a non-evolutionary anatomy? And the answer is no. Uh, whatever your anatomy is, your physiology, uh, wh- your brain, it was sculpted by evolutionary processes, whatever they are. And the same principles apply to our our psychology, and, uh, and and another way to put it is, and those who are familiar with Steve Pinker and and others uh, know this: that in psychology, the dominant view was the mind is a blank slate upon which culture and parents and teachers write the script. And it's very clear, and we know now uh, through the evolutionary lens that we don't come into this world as a blank slate. We come into this world. Uh, pre-equipped, so to speak, with a a suite of adaptations that uh, uh, that are the result of a long history of evolutionary processes, natural selection, sexual selection. So another way of phrasing that is that uh, we are all, um, and this is what I like actually, we are all evolutionary success stories. We are all the products of a long and unbroken chain of ancestors each of whom succeeded not only at surviving, but surviving enough to attract a mate, select a mate, keep a mate, have sex with a mate, that's the fun part, uh, sometimes hold on to a mate uh, to produce us. And so everyone in this room, all of us, each have successful parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way back each of whom succeeded in solving all these complex problems, uh, in this case, and my focus is on mating, of um, not just surviving, but uh, traversing all these different mating problems. And so, and so uh, in terms of evolutionary psychology, what we have is this very complex uh, suite of psychological adaptations that are designed to solve mating problems. Uh, and, and I actually think it's, I mean, some people... 
uh, when, when you think about it, do we need our large brain? So we have a basically 1350 cubic centimeter brain. I mean, it's massive. Do we need that to pick better berries uh, or to avoid snakes or to avoid spiders? And the answer is no. Uh, but we do need it to engage in more complex social tasks of which mating is central. Like lying. <laughs> um. <laughs> that's, that's one strategy, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, Juan, I, I also, I, I like that, that, that you could kind of frame, uh, evolution in, in many different ways because you could be like, hey, you're all evolutionary success stories. Doesn't that feel <laughs> wonderful? You're all unique snowflakes. And then you can also be like, also, you're a blip of nothingness in a long <laughs> stream. So it just depends on how you want to look at it. Um, but, uh, but one thing that um, that always fascinated me is is I do think that um, mo- most people kind of get the idea of of primates started like standing upright and kind of and, and saw this kind of classical evolutionary chart of a guy standing more and more upright and sort of get it that a body like you might evolve imposable thumbs or whatever but people really don't think about. Um, how how the mind has adapted um, in in those same ways, and uh, I think that it, I think it also came to me. Some of your work came to me at a very uh, uh, timely part of my life because you were struggling I struggling with mating. I was struggling with <laughs> mating at the time. I, I I had gotten out of a really rough relationship, and I was in a new, exciting one. But it felt like it didn't feel right. It ended up not being quite right, but. Um, just kind of figuring out why I made the decisions that it, just out of curiosity, um, does anyone in here um, enjoy sex uh, and, uh, yeah. oh, a couple of you okay good good all right um, so the, the, those who did not enjoy sex are not our ancestors <clears throat> so and won 't become ancestors <clears throat> so actually that 's something that so if if um, if sex happens to evolve to feel good in an organism then it will potentially have or in some living thing a mammal or whatever it will potentially have more um, more sex because this thing feels good and if it has more sex then it will leave more offspring right so why not i've always wondered this why doesn't sex feel even better like why <laughs> why why not why? Why did evolution stop it? Like there, there's nothing. <laughs> you mean it's not as good as MDMA or something? <laughs> okay. Well, well, I can tell you. I mean, it's like. Um, for, well, what? For, for, first of all, we have to solve other adaptive problems. So, if sex sex felt so good that you spend all your time, and some people do actually, they get hooked on pornography and literally don't leave their house. They're stuck behind the computer screen. Um, you die. Uh, and, and you can do that. Um, I mean, they've done these experiments with rats where they uh, basically plant an electrode in the pleasure-seeking center of the brain, and the rats literally starve to death because they hit the bar and they get the electric jolt. They starve to death. So um, we have to distribute our energy over multiple adaptive problems, uh, of which sex is one. Mm. It's not the only one. <laughs> Shoot. So, uh-huh. okay, but but here's the good thing for, for you. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a big is one. That, is that I, I actually I saw this? You mentioned Animal Planet. I saw this uh, last night on Animal Planet. Uh, we're talking about like a a, uh, a squirrel. Like let's say a a squirrel evolved a psychology 
such that it was content once it ate one nut, cracked one nut, and was eternally blissful. Well, it would starve to death, right? So same with sex, though. So you have sex, it feels great, but then it goes away. But we want to experience it again and again and again. So, uh, and so, so even though it, the, the peaks, I don't know about your sex life, but maybe the peaks aren't I'm as... happy to share. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I don't know. For a lot of people, it feels pretty damn good. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, it could always be better. I feel. Like. I, I mean, I, I, like, why not? Well, well maybe, so, maybe. so say it feels like the best thing you've ever felt in your life. Why not? The best thing times a hundred is my ramp, point, and and you wouldn't, you simply wouldn't leave the house. Is is basically um, the answer. I, I mean, I think that. Um, do you think that some of these things it can can be um, heavily cultural? Like, what about? Um, how does kind of memetics come into this? So, so t- say you take two religions and you have this idea and, and one, one guy says, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And then another guy says, God said that none of us should ever have sex and we should re- uh, remain pure or whatever. Um, now skip forward a thousand years or so and see which religion uh, has taken off. The idea of being fruitful and multiply, you're probably going to have a lot more practitioners in um, that one, then the religion that probably died or is close to it where you're not having um, uh, sex, right? And so so a, a lot of our kind of psychology has adapted in the same, where it's not necessarily um, what, is, uh, what is right, whatever that means. Um, it's, it's kind of about whatever's happening to pass the genes on. Um. Yeah, well, I think there are a couple, I mean, your, your question raised a couple different, I mean, there are a couple different angles that you can approach that from. Uh, one is that the memes that we create um, are memes that are the products are, of our evolved psychology. And so it's not by chance that um, the, the movies that we enjoy watching, the pornographic images we enjoy watching, the, even the literature we enjoy reading about, uh, it's not by chance that those these particular themes and images um, are produced uh, and catch on. So, uh, so, so memetics is not just some independent causal process. It's a product uh, of our evolved psychology. A second angle, though, is um, what memes parasitize or hijack or exploit our evolved psychology. Uh, and so, um, and so, there's a there's a field of memetics that argues that, um, or at least some practitioners argue that, the things that spread are in the memes' best interest, not in the genes' best interest. Uh, so, but, th- but that's probably that takes us too far too far afield from the central topic, which is mating. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I'll reel it back in. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right. I, well, I mean, it is, it's interesting because uh, I, I have a joke in my, my act about psychedelics about how, like, a lot of time people don't realize that it's coming from within them. Like, someone will, someone will trip and be like, oh, I get it now. It's, a, it's like it's about free love and making love with everybody all the time. And, like, you will notice that any time a dude has a spiritual experience and gets a message from God or whatever, it usually has something to do with how he needs to be boning more women yes that's in your head um and but 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 the idea is 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 the reason why i i think that 
um, it's an important topic to bring up is because um, this evolutionary psychology stuff is a relatively new field. Uh, 99, the first textbook, and, uh, and the kind of traditional belief was this blank slate view, but it's to hear things from an evolutionary psychologist's perspective, it's much more like, yes, society does have an influence, but how society formed in the first place um, was greatly impacted by our own instincts, right? Is that how you, how you would look yeah, at it? Yeah, I wouldn't use the term instincts, but but yeah, uh, in essence, or evolved I'm psychology. I'm sorry about uh, the term well, well, it's just, I mean, when you, yeah. when, when you use the term instincts, I mean, what people think about is these sort of like robotic, like, you know, the environment doesn't matter, culture doesn't matter, society doesn't matter. Um, all adaptations are designed to be responsive to environmental influences. And so uh, you can see this very readily with callus-producing mechanisms. So to take a physical example, um, you don't just wake up in the morning and grow sprout calluses. It requires environmental input that triggers the activation of physiological mechanisms that say grow new skin cells in this part of the body. Uh, same with mating behavior. We don't like wake up and just say, I want sex, and then robotically go around like that. So we are, our mating adaptations are sensitive to our own mate value. You know, are we, uh, you know, uh, an eight, uh, a six, a four, or, or a two? Um, Why are you pointing uh, <laughs> at me? <laughs> sorry, sorry. So much yeah. higher I than just, a two, just, dude. Just, Come on. This is what's called derogation of competitors. <laughs> But, but but so yeah, it depends on uh, our, our mate value. It depends on the sex ratio uh, in the uh, in the population in the mating pool. So if there's a surplus of women, for example, or a surplus of men, that causes mating strategies to shift. Uh, of course, uh, legal strictures, even our sexual morality, uh, is something that we create, but then exerts its own causal force in interaction with our evolved psychology to produce behavior. So, for example... Leading to moral hypocrisy. <laughs> or what I call sexual hypocrisy, yeah. Well, so, so for example, if, say, I were to tell you that there's a population full of people that where um, men um, greatly outnumbered women, um, and, and then there's a population where it's 50-50, what kind of um, differences in those populations in the way that men... Um, behave in the uh, what what kind of predictions would you make about how that psychology would be kind of oh, primed? Okay, so well, we we actually know a fair amount about the answer to that. So let's do it both ways, though. Sure. Uh, population one surplus of men. Population two surplus of women. Population three fifty fifty. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, so basically, when there's a surplus of men, mating uh, turns to long term. Uh, relationships get very stable, divorce rates plummet, and basically when there's a surplus of men, men who succeed in attracting a woman, basically hold on they, they hold on for dear life. <laughs> there's you know, hardly uh, any of these. They, they ramp up the, the resource allocation, the attention, the yeah. attentiveness, they start listening. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and relationships. Did you know that we're capable of that, guys? It's <laughs> yeah. within you. It, it, you just, is, you it just is, need it less women there. around to activate it. Uh, yeah. So, so, uh, but, but, what about the the reverse surplus of women? Uh, things shift more to short term mating. Uh, marriages get more unstable. Long term relationships get more unstable. Uh, there is more hookup, uh, hookup culture. Uh, women compete with each other 
more in the sexual domain. So you can even chart it with clothing. Uh, so female clothing starts to get skimpier because they are competing with other women. Uh, and I, I saw this actually, I gave a talk recently at uh, TCU uh, up the street, um, Texas Christian University. Uh, I guess it's up near your neck of the woods, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, at TCU, there's a sex ratio of 60% women, 40% men. And I, talk, I talked to a number of the undergraduates there, and they, uh, they basically said, that the women, they said, like, the, there are these guys who would normally be a five in any other market, but in their, they're like eights and nines. And so they're, like, walking around like Hugh Hefner, you know, in that mating environment. And so, and so sex ratio has a dramatic impact because the, the rarer sex is the more valuable sex. Their mate value increases relative to the more frequent sex. And you see this, I mean, and there, throughout human history, there have been uh, both contexts. So like in, um, uh, for example, the early uh, uh, population of the United States, you know, people came over as a surplus of men. So in certain parts of Alaska, for example, there were like 17 men for every one woman. So you have like a huge surplus of men. Uh, and then other extremes, you get a surplus of women. And that raises actually one thing that I talk, they do talk about in the book, uh, which is something, a relatively recent thing, and that is that uh, a surplus of women among educated women. Uh, and what's happening is, and this is, and that's why TCU is not just an outlier, same is true of the University of Texas, where I teach. Uh, UT has uh, 54% women, 46% men, and it, it varies somewhat, but throughout the United States and throughout Western Europe, there's a surplus of women among college-educated uh, populations. And so this is creating a very interesting imbalance because that interacts with our evolved psychology, namely that women typically do not want to mate with men who are less intelligent, less educated, and less successful than they are, whereas men are much more willing to drop their standards on those variables. And so what that means is there, you're getting this highly educated sur surplus of highly educated, intelligent, successful women, and there aren't enough men that meet their standards. So it's, it's creating what I call a mating crisis. Step it up a little bit, guys. <laughs> <That's> what... <laughs> right. Well, that's why, I mean, one, I mean, one tip for guys, uh, I mean, one of the things, you, the, the exception, by the way, is in engineering schools. So MIT, Caltech, some of the engineering schools, they still have a surplus of men. But for guys who are having struggling with mating, one tip is, hey, go to college, get educated, because there is a surplus of women in those mating pools. Yeah, don't, I mean, don't you think guys will, like, naturally figure that? I, I mean, I, I think it will naturally be like, <laughs> you, you know what, I always... I, I think I like homework more than I realized, like kind of well, non-consciously well, well, be see, driven to go where well, the women are, may, right? Maybe you would think that that would be the case, um, um, and maybe it will be the case, but uh, there are a couple things that work against it. Okay, One is that women are um, more conscientious than men, so on this personality variable conscientiousness, and so what that means is women typically get better grades in middle school, high school, and so they are literally more qualified applicants for college. And so they get admitted at higher rates there. A second thing is that men get, um, 
we do stupid stuff, so men get... Uh, I like to call it badass stuff, uh, okay, actually, so, but, okay. Uh, okay. but... But we end up doing risk-taking stuff. Get, we get jailed more, um, and so there are, more, there, there are more dropouts, and so that sort of bleeds the population of males who might otherwise mm. go to college. Um, and then the other thing, I'll mention one other thing, and that's a modern... A novel you mentioned memes. A modern novel context that interacts with our evolved psychology is online pornography, and now with over the last ten years, there's been this dramatic increase in online pornography and pornography addiction, and just number of hours males spend watching it is predominantly male, so it's not always, but. But, but perhaps isn't 80, it like ninety five percent of the views it, or something it's like some, that? Or something like that. I would have. I was going to be generous to men and say only eighty yeah. percent. But um, there, there's yeah. this really good book, um, um, "A Billion Wicked Thoughts." Or yes, something? yeah, are, are yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Familiar. Familiar. I actually yeah, yeah. blurbed that book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so one of the things that that does though is that it, when you think about it, so there's a mismatch between our evolved psychology in this weird modern environment. So we evolved in the context of small groups, and you would never have encountered more than perhaps a few dozen potential mates in your lifetime. So, But here you get on your computer and the Internet, and, and there are like hundreds and thousands of potential mates, it, it seems to you, or at least it's playing with your evolved psychology. And so um, and so men get that, that combined with Internet dating sites. Uh, Gives men the the perception that there's a, this huge abundance of females out there, and so they're not doing what you that see are like super of, willing to do right, all right, sorts right, of right, crazy right. stuff exactly with, without foreplay, <laughs> without anything, just like yeah, immediately within thirty seconds, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and and so I think that that there's a way in which this this modern technology is. Um, um, de- negatively affecting our evolved sexual psychology. I'm happy you brought this up. I wanted to ask you about this very thing: is how how you think the. Uh, I mean, this is this is a vastly different world. That we've built a very odd world for ourselves, and, and it's not <laughs> yes. the world that we were built for originally. Yeah. And um, it, when I think of things like, what, I, I mean, I, I think about this when I was kind of asking why why wouldn't sex feel um, better if if that's a motivator or whatever, but. I wonder if that will change a little bit. I, I wanted to ask you about how do, how do you think um, birth control and and these sorts of things in our modern society is going to shape evolution where um, it used to be that, you know, so it doesn't matter if you wanted a kid or not, you know, sex felt, uh, you know, good enough that you would do it regularly enough where you would have children. There wasn't really a whole lot of planning involved and in, in perhaps maybe the reason why sex didn't feel uh, even better is is um, just because you could actually have, have enough to sit back and evaluate and be like, these fucking things are costly. Uh, like, it feels good and everything, but... And, but, but I doubt, even with, even with the most self-control any human could have, how, I mean, I doubt there was people just not having sex uh, that had opportunities to anyway whereas nowadays you can be like no i do not want children do you think that it could be um uh, i guess what i'm wondering is do you think that this could lead to uh like this idea of idiocracy where where um people that are maybe not not as cautious or or um uh, 
not thinking things through as much are going to be the ones that are typically going to be having. I mean, what if? It, it, <laughs> I if, think I understand what you're getting at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, if condom, if condoms and birth control are are a thing that are used by responsible and uh, people, but sex feels uh, good enough for for some like. For example, I, I really uh, dislike condoms my, <laughs> myself. I think most people do, but I think that some some of these people, when you talk about sex addi- addiction, there are people that are on other extremes of it. And what if um, more more of these kind of uh, what what if sex addicts become kind of the future because everyone else is is making these reasonable decisions? Like I've made a decision, I'm not going to have children. I'm going to, my girlfriend's going to use birth control, maybe I'll get a vasectomy or whatever it takes to not have children um, because I've consciously thought about it. Yeah, but. yeah. So, so uh, in other words, could, the, could birth control or, yeah. or could there be current selection for irresponsibility? Is that right. what you're asking? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah. for <laughs> wrapping all of that long-winded thing up and... <laughs> Professor David Boss, everybody, my goodness. You know, that yeah. was like five minutes. I was trying to explain that one sentence that just came out of his mouth. So, uh, well, I mean, the short answer is, in principle, in principle, yes. Um, uh, but I think it's, it's partly um, a fool's game to try to predict the future. Mm-hmm. So evolution is a slow process that occurs over many, many, many generations. And I don't think anyone three generations ago could have predicted the current state that we're in now. Um, I mean, three generations ago, there was no, there weren't computers, there there wasn't the internet. Uh, So three generations from now, uh, people will look back and we will look like Neanderthals uh, in the future. So so I don't know. I think all bets are off. So so is it possible in principle? Of course. Yeah. Uh, That more responsible people are, are having children or choosing not to use birth control. Um, yeah, it's entirely possible. Uh, but s- different selection forces occur in different environments all around the world. And so, um, so I, I wouldn't make any, any uh, forward projections on those issues. This is probably going to seem like a silly question, but it is something that I think about. Do you, do you, what, do you think that masturbation had like a, a – to me it seems like masturbation must have had this tremendous effect on the course of evolutionary <laughs> history – like, Once people were I, I able to we were like blow off a little bit of personal steam. confessions here. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Excuse um, me, I want to grab a beer. Yeah, no problem. Um, I, I mean, just from a self-control aspect, if you can, and and also your ability to kind of humans or primates' ability to run these kind of simulations and prepare for the future. Um, I <laughs> I don't know. I I just think that. Um, uh, I don't know the question I was going to ask, but it was some. I just want to know your thoughts on um, on, on masturbation. Web, on, <laughs> I I want to know if if you think that uh, that masturbation has some. I I feel like without it, um, humans could have never been as as smart as we uh, as we got okay, to be. I, I don't follow your logic there. I I think I think that if you're kind of just primitively. Um, this might be the weirdest uh, and perhaps dumbest question I've ever asked on this show, but um, it, it seems like it, it took back a little bit of um, cognitive control rather rather than being um, so. If you go for a while without it, if you go through 
through a dry spell, I feel like you're you're um, uh, you've been primed to be much hornier than normal and make poor decisions than usual. Whereas if you can kind of have this release valve to blow <laughs> off a little steam here and there, we can totally skip this question. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, okay. Well, let, well, let me answer it briefly, and then, then we yeah, can, yeah, then yeah, we can yeah, move yeah. on. So, well, so, well, you probably know. I mean, they're, they're, uh, Robin Baker, uh, author of uh, the Sperm Wars, ha- argues that the function of masturbation, at least for males, is to – one of the functions is to uh, get rid of what, what – he, he's British, so he calls them duffer sperm. So, so in other words, sperm do degrade over time. And so if they're just sitting around in the reproductive tract for too long or in the seminal vesicles for too long, then they kind of get old. And so he, he argues that masturbation sort of gets rid of the old, the old uh, guys and allows opportunity for the new guys to come in. Uh, so, but that, that's sort of different from the release valve notion that right, you're right. proposing. But that's fine. Yeah, b- bottom line is, I mean, there, there, there hasn't been a lot of research on that. I mean, we don't even know things like, well, uh, what, what are masturbation rates in tra- more traditional hunter-gatherer populations? We, we, short answer is we don't know a lot about that. That's an awkward question to go, like, <laughs> yeah, I thought find this tribe. True confessions here. No, I mean, it would be odd to, like, wa- uh, introduce yourself to hunter-gatherers and be like, <laughs> right. how do you slip that g- g- <laughs> right. question in in the middle? <laughs> right, um, right, right. Uh, and, and actually, speaking of um, uh, surveys, and what, uh, can, can you talk just a little bit about some of the origins of, of some of the initial, where you got all of this kind of cross-cultural data sending out tens of thousands of surveys to people all around the world kind of asking about some of their um, some of their preferences and mate choices and behaviors sure. and so and that and this was some of the kind of um foundations of your early work right yeah yeah absolutely well so so basically this deals with uh, sexual selection theory so sexual selection is the evolution of characteristics not due to their survival uh advantage but rather due to their mating advantage and sexual selection basically operates through two causal processes one is um Two males, the stereotype is uh, intrasexual competition. Two males basically battling it out. The victor gains access to the female. Loser ambles off with a broken antler, very dejected, low self-esteem, needing psychotherapy. Um, but the, the you know, I didn't, I didn't realize <clears throat> that that um, that deer only had antlers for that. Like when I initially said, I didn't realize. I thought they had antlers all the time. I didn't realize <laughs> no, that no, they no. just grow them yeah. for literally yeah. for mating season, just to knock each yes, other's it, heads it, into it, impressed it, ladies. It, exactly. And then they literally fall right off afterwards because why would you want this dumb big thing oh, on right, your head? Right, because right. it's uh, it's cumbersome. It's metabolically costly. It it uh, causes you to be more vulnerable to predators. Uh, but the other component, so the, uh, the intrasexual competition is whatever qualities lead to success in these same-sex battles, those increase in frequency over time by virtue of the sexual access that the victors gain. But the other component of sexual selection is a preferential mate choice. So, and that boils down to what are the qualities that men or women want in potential mates. And so basically the logic there is that uh, those who possess the desired qualities, they have a mating advantage. They get chosen. Those who lack the desired qualities get shunned, banished, ignored, uh, and basically bite the evolutionary dust. And so 
what that study, what my first, it was a study of 37 different cultures, was designed to do was to get at, well, what are the mate preferences of men and women? What qualities do they desire in potential mates that exert this selective influence on the mating system? So it was basically a study designed to test sexual selection theory uh, or unpack it in humans. And so, we, yeah, we had 37 cultures, uh, and I do highlight in the, that in the evolution of desire, 37 cultures, 10,000 participants from basically every, every walk of life. And in a nutshell, what we found is we found some things that were universally desired by everyone. So uh, everyone wanted a mate who was kind, intelligent, uh, understanding, healthy, dependable, uh, emotionally stable, so no one wanted a, a mean, stupid, ugly, disease-ridden mate. Um, per, perhaps not not surprising, uh, but um, but then there were some things that were cross-culturally variable. So the most variable was the desire for virginity or chastity, uh, and so for example, mainland China people in mainland China said that was indispensable. Would not would not marry someone who did not was not a virgin. And then all the way at the other end, you had uh, Sweden and Norway, who basically said it was like bad, undesirable uh, to be uh, chased, uh, and then everything in between. Uh, and then we found some things that were universally sex differentiated. So we found, for example, um, uh, cues to fertility. So men placed a greater emphasis on physical appearance, physical attractiveness, and relative youth. Um, now, I, I did have a postdoc at the time who when she discovered that finding, she said, I have a hypothesis that can explain that, David. I said, what's that? And she said, men are slime. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, that may be true, but they're slime in a very domain-specific way, um, not a blank slate way. Uh, uh, but, but, but women, um, more than men, placed a greater importance on uh, financial resources, but also, more importantly, cues that lead to future finan financial resources, future resources um, going on. So a good, a good resource trajectory is the way I summarize it. So when you think about um, our, ancest our ancestral conditions, uh, you know, you couldn't store resources. We didn't have cash economies. They're only about 7,000 years old. Um, you didn't have refrigerators or freezers, so you can't like kill a bison and they store it in the freezer. Uh, so what, you, what women selected for is males who had the, the ability uh, to be good hunters, uh, who, who said, no, I'm not going to, I, I want to hang out smoking weed in the hammock all day. Sorry to put a damper on that. Uh, but, uh, but, but rather, men, you know, men who said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go out and, what was you know. That for? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh, Anyway, so it was like anyway. You're attacking me yeah, for no I'm reason. Just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that guy. It's called it's called the teasing. Uh, you're, you're you're a comedian. You should know about these things. I do. Uh, but anyway, so but yeah, it was it was a cool study. I've evolved thick skin. <laughs> it's, it's very attractive exactly. quality. Right. Like, yeah. Like like elephant seals. They yeah. they have those tusks and they have also these defensive plates right there. Yeah. Thick skin. Good uh, thing. <laughs> Good thing in intersexual competition. So well, you've probably honed that as a comedian, is my is my guess. I mean, you must have had like hecklers and stuff. Oh you, yeah. Have you learned how to deal with those? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, so a lot of the things that that kind of work for 
uh, when I started learning about this stuff that, that sort of worked for how one goes about advertising their fitness, I started kind of using it to figure out how to, how to like advertise myself like on stage and and um and so there was there were simple things that i realized early on um reading about work like yours which is like oh of course if i'm like smoking cigarettes every day i quit smoking for a few years now i'm on and off again but i i actually evolutionary psychology helped me quit smoking because i was like (laughs) yeah of course someone wants is is going to be naturally drawn to um, someone who is healthier that makes perfect sense and so me not being healthy that's going to make me less attractive so just like pure um, out of vanity I was able to quit smoking for a while um, and then and then you got a girlfriend and started smoking <laughs> yeah um, but one of the big things was was kind of the uh, um, the idea of the handicap principle yeah. can you kind of explain just a, a little bit of the gist of of why why the things that were at what criteria you're looking for when you're like this is an attractive mate or whatever what what sort of criteria how they're uh, um uh evaluating what because this isn't it seems like some of this stuff could be cultural as well like in in america uh we might have the nfl whereas in other countries it might be soccer or call it football uh would would be like that's what you want, like some some soccer player, uh, right? And then, but in other countries, it's going to be a baseball player or whatever it might be. But still, athleticism overall is kind of this big. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All 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 cultures have athletic contests of one form or another, um, and uh, so so. But yeah, your question about the handicap is basically this is actually an Israeli biologist first proposed this, and he was. He was laughed out of the academy for this because he presented it in verbal form. But the, the basic idea is like, why does the peacock have this weird, cumbersome, metabolically expensive plumage that's like a neon sign to predators advertising fast food? Uh, and uh, Zahavi's answer was, it's basically saying, look, I am so fit, I am so strong and so agile, I can carry around this cumbersome uh, train this cumbersome plumage and still thrive and still survive and so it was a signal of of health and robustness uh, according to Zahavi and there's a very interesting story about this so this is he proposed this around 1975-76 and a uh, one of the world's greatest evolutionary biologists uh, John Maynard Smith did a mathematical model and pr- showed or purported to show that this could not work Mathematically, and so Zahavi was sort of laughed out of the academy. And then a student of John Maynard Smith's, a guy named Alan Graffin, uh, did his doctoral dissertation and found that his mentor was wrong, that if he changed a couple of assumptions to make them more realistic, turns out handicaps can evolve and are likely to be very common throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, and so Zahavi was sort of, his, re- his reputation was resurrected, his mate value increased, um, and uh, I don't know what yeah. his subsequent mating opportunities were, but, uh, but ha- yeah, ha- handicaps. And so they have different cultures, have, you, you mentioned different cultural expressions of this. Uh, one is uh, historically in eth- ethnographies is what's called a potlatch. And some of you heard that's where the, a, a guy will throw a lavish feast uh, and they'll, might use an entire year's worth of food to to basically give out to everyone. But it's it's like that handicap idea. I am so 
wealthy. I'm so resourceful that I can afford to display all this stuff, and still it's not a problem. Yeah, like you can't, uh, in our evolutionary history, you couldn't, if, if females are after a guy, that with uh, the ability to obtain more resources or whatever, this is one of the criteria. You, you can't just be like, hey, I'm super rich, um, because you could be lying. So an honest, a more honest indicator of this is, is that you can waste your money on, on making sure your car has a hood ornament that you're basically paying like $70,000 for or whatever. Well, well, but, I, but I would say, I would just uh, say that, that, that women value honest signals, okay, rather than dishonest. So um, it's easy to fake stuff. And so even things like, and this is an illustration, so, so would a woman like, let's say, a guy who uh, made a million dollars through his own efforts? So in a, like I started with nothing and then he became, or did he inherit the million or won it by chance in the lottery? Women value the qualities that lead to success, not just the success itself. Mm. Yeah, so... So is the guy stable? Is he intelligent? Uh, does he have drive? Does he have goals? Mm. Um, so these are some of the things that I thought about when I was uh, when uh, for stage was, was realizing that if I could just make myself more vulnerable, that would be showing... So a lot of people are like, oh, you couldn't... I could never do stand-up comedy, which to me is just like, oh, it's easy. I just go on stage and tell jokes, and like people laugh, and sometimes they don't, or they're drunk, or they talk or too much or whatever, but who cares? And, and so this is, this to, so I started thinking about like these kind of honest indicators of, like right now, I'm uh, someone without a college education uh, talking with one of the smartest people you'll ever meet and, uh, and asking awkward masturbation questions and whatnot. <laughs> And I'm able to do that and, like, not give a fuck. And so, uh, so this is, like, a way that I can advertise um, my, my, like, toughness, right? My, uh, how thick my skin is. And, and it's, it's something that I think about all the time. Um, and actually, we, I better open it up for just a couple questions because I, I do want to um, wrap up with a, with a, uh, with a few thoughts. But, um, yeah, actually, here, why don't you, uh, why don't you use it? All right. So I was just wondering what you think would be like the most important aspect of evolutionary psychology for like the average person, like somebody like me, I guess. Uh, so, so someone, so someone reads, buys the evolution of desire, available on Amazon and other, <laughs> uh, and. And they, they read this not just out of a natural curiosity, but they want, they want to f- find something in here that's going to change their life in some positive manner, presumably. Yeah, well, I think, well, okay, if you're, if you're bringing it down to, to mating and, and, and my book, The Evolution of Desire, I would say that uh, to be successful at mating, um, you, it helps to understand our evolved psychology of mating. So, and that includes understanding what qualities men want, what qualities women want, what tactics of attraction are successful or or which are unsuccessful. Uh, Also know something about the different social environments uh, that, uh, like the sex ratio that I mentioned earlier, where, um, you know, people, both men and women can go to um, sex ratio environments that are simply more favorable, where they have more options. Uh, and I mean, one of the things that we know about um, 
about humans is is we have evolved choice, evolved mate choice, and not all species do, uh, but 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 we do, and it's and it's mutual mate choice, and so that means it's not just who you're attracted to, who you would select. You have to be selected as well reciprocally, uh, and so knowledge about what qualities the people you're trying to attract value. Uh, gives you, I mean, key, keys to the kingdom in a way. Um, not, not that you can do something about all of them. So, like, let's say uh, it, it is the case that women, uh, for example, uh, prefer men who are uh, taller than they are, uh, but also taller than average by by a couple inches. Well, you can't say, okay, well, I'm going to change my height. That's not something you can do about. Uh, anything about, but but many of sorry the qual- suckers, uh, but, but but many of the qualities uh, you can do something about. So um, uh, you mentioned smoking and health, uh, health hygiene is something. This is something men don't realize. Actually, this is to me is astonishing. Uh, w- women uh, uh, women have a better sense of smell than men do, and so and so and so a guy and so guys are often oblivious to this. A guy can have all the sort of qualities that they might uh, m- might be on a checklist, but if he doesn't smell right, it's a deal breaker. Uh, and so uh, attention to good hygiene. So there are things that, that you can do to make yourself, make yourself more attractive, uh, increase your mate value is what I say. I've, I, I should start a bit. If I were a businessman, I would, I would open up. Here are the three businesses I would open up. <laughs> the, the imp- uh, <laughs> Uh, David is just about to sell you his new cologne. By the way, I'm actually I'm actually not not at all because I'm I'm a I'm a terrible businessman. That's why I became an academic. Uh, but uh, but I thought of my, my ideas were so like a mate value improve your mate value business would be one. Sure. I thought of another one which is a a rent a puppy business because um, because women really like guys who interact well with puppies. And it, and I think it hijacks the, the hell you say. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, I am I am interested in the evolutionary explanation. Yeah. Well, what I thought is uh, this was first done by an uh, evolutionary psychologist, a woman named uh, Peggy Lacera, for her doctoral dissertation. And she didn't do it with puppies; she did it with babies. And she had these uh, conditions where man is standing there alone, interacting positively with the baby, ignoring a baby in distress, or vacuuming the living room rug. And just has the so same guy in these different editions. And women thought the guy who was interacting positively with the baby, baby was just attractive as hell. Guy ignoring the baby in distress, very bad. And the other conditions were kind of interesting. They actually thought the guy who was doing nothing was more attractive than the guy vacuuming the living room rug. Uh, but, um, but, but so I thought, okay, this is interesting, though, the, the baby effect. And then I thought, so I'll, I'll, I'll create a, a rent-a-baby business but that's too impractical so then i thought rent a puppy business and then i just found out someone started this business i don't think for mating purposes uh, but anyway this is, this is a long digression no i think that we could rent babies i think like why why, why not? i like the ambition um so so um just just a, a couple of uh, a couple takeaways one um the, the the things that you do have control over taking uh, uh good care of your health but i mean isn't um haven't haven't humans evolved to advertise um this intelligence stuff more than 
more than anything? Don't you think this is one of the more, uh, in, in both sexes, one of the, one of the bigger uh, criterias that people are looking at? Or is it, have, have I uh, heard something like some people don't like someone that's like much, much smarter than they yeah. are? They want someone kind of relatively yeah. along the same? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's so much the advertising intelligence per se, but um, rather what intelligence indicates. So someone whose intelligence, and, and this gets to the whole issue of what is intelligence, and of course it's much, much more than the IQ test measure. Um, it's, it's just dependent on how rich you are. If you have more money, <laughs> yeah. that means you're super smart. If well, you don't well, have money, well, you're well, pretty no, dumb. It, no, but that gets into what is the source of the money. If you inherited it's it. meritocracy. If you inherited it or won it in a lottery, it's not as attractive right. as if you had the the drive and the intelligence and the smarts to actually go out and figure out how to create it yourself. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was making a joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, 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 go for it. I'm, I'm just wondering if there are other reasons for understanding your field of work that don't have anything to do with, like, survival or mating. Like, are there, like... I don't know. Like a really crappy example would be like marketing purposes or something, and you know. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well, well. So I mean, this is not a crappy example. It's a great example. Uh, so uh, I, I take a, an, a what may seem to some an extreme view, and that is that the only psychology we have is our evolved psychology. That's all we have. And so what marketing is, and what successful marketing is, is it's basically hijacking or exploiting or parasitizing our evolved psychology and the whole there, this is actually a, an entire new branch where evolutionary psychology is go, getting into b schools and marketing and advertising and so forth and what what they've done historically is is almost sort of trial and error and through trial and error they've hit upon some pretty cool things that have exploited that and so like one that i think about is um and this is kind of in the old days, but Michelin tires used to have this ad where they put this very cute baby inside a tire, and they and the message is because you've got a lot riding on your tires, and like parents like look at that say hey I'm willing to pay double for my tires I I want my kids to survive so what is that doing is is it's hijacking an evolved parental mechanism and so all of marketing does that. And, and I think that it's done mostly through trial and error and often successfully, but informed by an evolutionary perspective could be infinitely more successful. Could you say that marketing is kind of evolving evolutionarily also? Because uh, the, the field of marketing might be evolving along with human evolution? Um, well, I don't, know, I don't know enough about marketing to, to, to quite answer that. Um, well, but, wouldn't, wouldn't but, marketing kind of, I, I mean, as, yeah. as they're getting more sophisticated, they're figuring out more tricks. Yeah. Like maybe all of a sudden you figure out like lavender makes people spend more money or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But then people get wise to, it's, it's this kind of red queen effect in a way, hopefully, any, anyway, that the marketers yeah. won't, because people will get wise to some of these scams. And so then marketers will have to uh, evolve more sophisticated techniques. And, and, right, right, uh, right. And, and, there, and there's a sense in which it, it is a Darwinian process in that um, the companies that succeed and thrive are those that are best able to exploit our evolved psychology is the way that I look at it. Are you telling me that 
Um, if I, and drink I don't mean Budweiser, in a, in, a, in, a, in a negative sense. I mean, um, you know, I mean, just uh, tap into might be a more neutral way to describe it. Yeah, I was just want, I was going to say if uh, does Budweiser really make attractive women talk to me or not? Because the, <laughs> according to all the commercials, you know what's funny is, is so as much as they might evolve, they're still using some of the same old tricks too. Some of these evolved techniques. So there's now now there's yeah, I, I, I just came from Colorado where they have all uh, you know marijuana's legal um, everywhere, and now all of like the bud tenders, the people are like. Some, some places it's literally girls in bikinis serving you weed. Like they're like, did you know potheads also like breasts? And, <laughs> and that's funny. And it's yeah. still <laughs> like so. So it doesn't take that much sophistication in some cases to uh, to kind of hotwire those evolved um, adaptations. That's interesting because I, I was in Colorado and I, I went there and I went into these shops just out, out of curiosity. I don't, I don't smoke dope anymore. Out of curiosity, but, uh, everybody. But, just completely uh, but out of curiosity. I, you must have gone to the better ones than I did. I mean, there were just these guys in straggly beards, you know, showing me the displays. Yeah, so. no, they've been changing that. <laughs> okay, they're, well, good, they're hiring exceptionally attractive women now um, to I'm sell shocked. you weed. I'm shocked. Um, <laughs> I'm shocked it took them so long to figure that out. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's. Uh, we can do like one more question if someone has it, and then um, and then we'll wrap up. What are your thoughts on um, polyamory as it relates to evolutionary psychology? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a great question. Well, you know, the topic of polyamory, well, it's been around for a long time, but it's been uh, increasing in public discourse, and uh, and there are many different variants on it. Uh, what I would say is that um, it's a very interesting lifestyle or mating choice in that um, what you have is competing evolved desires, in, in my view. So one is people do have an evolved desire for sexual variety, and they're attracted to and do become involved with and fall in love with multiple people. And we, we know you could say humans are polyamorous in without the word being attached to it in the sense that serial mating uh, is a very common human strategy. We, we form a relationship with one person, uh, break up and mate with another person, break up uh, what I call the Elizabeth Taylor syndrome. Uh, or, uh, it, or Poor Elizabeth or, or, Taylor. Or, 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 really or Larry King would be. I think Larry King's on his sixth wife or so. so but that, that's a form of poly, polyamory. And so what polyamory... Uh, polyamory community, or at least some are advocating, is well, why not simultaneously rather than serially? And and but but I think that one of the issues that the polyamory community has to grapple with is that we we do have this desire for sexual variety, we do have desires and attractions for multiple people, um, and love sometimes for multiple people, but we also have sexual jealousy, and that's an evolved adaptation which is designed to ward off other people having sex with your particular mate. And, and, and sexual jealousy is one of the things that, it's one of the evolved emotions that people who are in the polyamory community have to, have to grapple with. And I don't think they've fully succeeded in grappling with it. Sexual jealousy is a very powerful emotion. So, but I think that this is one of these cases where you have uh, conflicting evolved emotions 
or conflicting evolved psychological adaptations that have to be resolved. And what polyamory in part tries to do is to resolve these. And so, um, so, that, so that some can be activated and some deactivated. And so some, for example, um, uh, I, mean, you, I mean, polyamory, you have polyamory, you have open relationships, you have swinger lifestyles, you have multiple variants on this sort of thing. Uh, but what people try to do is they try to um, manage their evolved emotions around these, around these issues. So saying, okay, it's okay. Uh, every Thursday night, it's okay if you have sex with someone else, but the rest of the time, you're mine. Or it's okay if you have certain forms of sex or certain forms of love with someone else, but not other forms. So people have, uh, I think people are still grappling with how to deal with those. I think some people, um, it, for, for some people, it's, a, it's an unnatural lifestyle. And for some, it's a perfectly natural lifestyle. It's one of these, one of the glories of human um, existence is these individual differences in our in our preferences. I like that you don't have to be married. There's a number of ways you can be miserable. Uh, <laughs> um, and and you uh, let's actually um, let's plug your other books. I've read them all, and I'm kind of forgetting because speaking of jealousy, this if you want to know more about jealousy, this this is uh, th- the work that you should be reading. Um, your other books are it's, uh, the dangerous passion is the yeah, one on jealousy. Yeah, jealousy oh, and infidelity. Mind blowing. I've read all of David's books, by the way, and they're all fantastic. And there, there's a murderer next door. The murderer next door. If you if you want to talk about killing, but mating and murder, <laughs> mating and murder are very closely related. <clears throat> it's I can real creepy you how close they are. Uh, in fact, oh. but um, so. So if you want to know more, please check out David Buss's books. And thank you, David, for joining us. Okay. Thank you, man. It's been fun talking. All right. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Hope you're enjoying the Laughable app. If you like comedy podcasts, there is simply no better podcast app that you could have. I'm not I'm not reading a script that they gave me. I just wanted to make it sound like I was reading a script in my sales pitch voice. I lost it. I had it and I lost I can't What's my sales? If you if you talk like this, people will be interested. Is that is that how I, that might be my I don't know. Let me know. Let me know what you think. I might it might need some work, but I believe in the laughable app and I think you will as well. Uh if you have suggestions, write anytime. <laughs> I don't know what I'm I'm exhausted and I'm an insane person. Uh <laughs> and I need a nap. I don't know what next week's episode is going to be because I'm recording this 10 days or so before it's being released, before the, those precious little ears of yours are are hearing this. And and uh, I have some in the bank, but I have some being recorded. I'm just up in the air right now. Lots of good stuff. Great, great episodes. It will be a good one, uh, no matter what. Once in a while, we have one that I'll like sandwich in between some other like good ones because it wasn't my favorite. Um, and I don't have any of those in the bank and I have, uh, nothing but gold in the podcast bank coming up right now. Um, we'll see. And then I also have some of, uh, one in particular, one, 
one podcast recording coming up that uh, is probably the one that I'm most excited for uh, in my in the uh, history of the Here We Are podcast. So that's exciting. I can't wait to tell you more. I hope it all works out. It's already planned. I just uh, I'm jinxing it now. I'm talking about how I'm just so nervous it's going to get canceled or something's going to happen. But I'm I'm just uh, a lot of great stuff coming up. Great guests coming up. And so tune in next week. Thanks for your support on Patreon. You guys that listen to the end, you are my favorite. What do you think I just sing for anybody? I I do not just sing for anybody. In fact, uh, I, I pretty much don't sing for anybody. And uh, so probably sorry. I, probably I should apologize uh, for... <laughs> for singing to you but i'm putting i just made myself vulnerable for you guys my favorites that listen all the way to the end and i hope you appreciate that and we're inspired to take a take a chance of your own in life and and uh put yourself out there (laughs) all right you guys are terrific talk to you next week Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? (laughs) Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. (laughs) Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> 
as he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 